0: Please take your Bibles and open to John 11. John 11. I think it's fair to say that the problem of evil remains one of the most common stumbling blocks for many people in the church and outside of the church. In other words, the problem of evil, why is there evil in the world? Why is there suffering and pain in the world? questioning the presence of evil itself. And really, when we question the presence of evil, the question itself inadvertently presumes that there is a God. It already presumes that there is a God. And the heart of the question is not accepting the presence of God, but rather accepting the presence of God in light of the presence of evil. If you really think about it, the core of it is not whether or not there is a God because I see evil, but it's what will my heart do in the presence of evil and the presence and light of this God. There are many who struggle to rationalize the reality of pain in this world. Pain is a reality that we're all subjected to, and we will all experience it to one degree or another. You can't escape its certainty. But the better question in this discussion is from what vantage point do you view your suffering? From what vantage, vantage point do you view the sorrow in your life? Is it from God's vantage point or from your own? Now hear me, it does not mean that we won't grieve if you're grieving from God's vantage point, but it informs how we grieve and why we grieve. From what vantage point do you view the sorrow in your own life? Our story in John 11 is one of grief. Grief. It's a story of grief. It's placed after Jesus' encounter with the Jews in chapter 10, and he slips away beyond the Jordan River. And this is where our story picks up. Because while here, he receives word from Martha and Mary in verse 3, that, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now, by their appeal to the Lord, it's clear that they, they knew the Lord. They knew who he was and what he could do. And you notice here, they didn't even ask him to come to them they don't even request for him to come, but it's clear that from what they say, the Lord, Lord, the one whom you love is sick, it's very clear that they're expecting him to come. That once they hear, it's not just anybody, but it's who? It's the one whom you love. They didn't demand or request, but they assumed that he would come, and come immediately once they hear that the one whom he loves is sick. Let's make clear here, in verse 5, it says that, that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. It's clear, Jesus loved this family. And in fact, in the other gospels that you could see, he spent time with this family, that he loved this family. He loved being in their home. When he was there, he was welcomed, and it was as if he could kick off his sandals, so to speak, and relax there, because he was welcomed there. So clearly, with this type of love, you would think he hears the message, the Lord, the one whom he loved, is sick, that he would come and hasten by their side immediately. Yet his love for them is not manifested in the way that they had planned. It says he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. I mean, you you picture if you have kids and they're in the backyard playing and you're in the kitchen, and if you hear the the blood-curdling scream of one of your kids, what do you do? Hold on, let me just finish drying this plate. I'll be out there in a second. No, no, you drop everything and you run. They're in trouble. They need your help. And yet when God, when Christ hears the story that his loved one, Lazarus, is sick, he stays where he's at. Jesus gives us the chief perspective in this entire story back in verse 4. Because he says here that the sickness is not to end in death, but for what? But for the glory of God so that the Son of Man may be glorified by it. That's the chief perspective to keep in mind as we go along the story. The end of the story is what? Not the healing of Lazarus' sickness, not even the raising of Lazarus. The main chief aim of the story is the glory of God so that the Son of Man may be glorified by it. In John 11, it exalts the glory of Christ in the sting of death. John 11 exalts the glory of Christ in the sting of death. And it's necessary for us to grasp this pain, this sting of death, not just for some sort of sick exercise, but because the reality and pain of death is the bleak backdrop of this entire story. But it's not the end of the story. We have to see the pain that is interlaced all throughout this story. It is the backdrop of everything that's happening, but this pain is not the end of the story. All throughout the story, the Lord's timing and his purposes are strategic, bringing it to his desired end. That he even has a purpose for his disciples. That when they hear that the Lord wants to now finally go to Lazarus after those two days, they're afraid to go back to Judea. They're afraid to go to see Lazarus. I mean, keep in their mind, chapter 10 obviously just happened. And in chapter 10, verse 31, you see after Jesus was speaking with the Jews who were opposing him, it says in 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. That's clearly in the back of their mind. Verse 39, they were seeking again to seize him. They were coming after him. And Jesus fled after that. He escaped them. They eluded from their grasp and left. And that's when he went beyond the Jordan where they're at now. So they just left (laughs) that that intense opposition from the Jews that he was teaching. And now Jesus is saying, okay, now let's go to Lazarus. And they're like, wait a minute. You know, they they were just seeking to stone you. Look at verse 8. Rabbi, the Jews were just now, just now that they were just now seeking to stone you. And you're going back there again? Uh, Teacher, do, do you not remember that big stone that was coming for you? But Jesus is not concerned about that. He tells them plainly, Lazarus is dead. He's no longer sick anymore. He's dead. And yet another strange movement of the plot is what Jesus says in verse 15. Lazarus is dead, but in verse 15, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. Wait, stop. Wait, what? <laughs> I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there. How can he be glad in this? That he realizes Lazarus is sick, he heard the news, stayed there where he was, and now he tells him, hey, he's dead, but I'm glad I was not there. Wait a minute. Is that the perspective we're supposed to have? I think so, but look, look what he's saying. Why? Because it's according to his plan. Because he says, so that you may believe. Now let us go to him. Again, the glory of Christ is exalted in the sting of death. And we're gonna see this in three progressions. Now, this is not our typical approach to Scripture. We normally take s- small passages at a time to work through it, but I think it's important we're gonna survey a large portion of Scripture here in John chapter 11, because I think it's needed. In order to get the full picture of everything that's going on and its significance, and as to see what's happening, we're gonna take a look at this, this story from a bird's eye view, so to speak. We're gonna look at it from below, I mean, from above, looking down below, so that we can understand what it is. That Christ is saying, that this is about his glory. So let's look at this this in three progressions. The first progression is the promise of life, it's stated. The promise of life. Because as Jesus arrives, he comes to the outskirts of the village of Bethany, which is near Jerusalem in Judea, and then Martha comes to meet him. And look at verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So already now, Lazarus is dead, and Jesus comes to the outskirts of the village. He doesn't enter into the village, and he's greeted by Martha. And in this culture, it's it's considered a, a pious duty to console the family of the bereaved. And when one passes away, even the poorest family, if you didn't know many people and you were poor, it was expected that you at least hire two flute players and one professional mourner to be there with you. I mean, that was expected in that culture. That the first seven days of the mourning was the most intense at this time. That they would grieve the most during those seven days. And it would extend for really 30 days at least. That this mourning was a common or a customary thing in this culture. And the fact that the text indicates that there had been many Jews consoling them tells us a couple things, that many Jews were there, that they were a prominent family, somewhat of a prominent family, that, they, that many, of them, many people knew them, and that they were likely wealthy, and so many of Jews came to console with them. But this also con- contributes to the story later on, that many Jews were there, and many Jews were mourning them. It's all part of the story that seems so significant, but it's building up to the intended end of Christ's glory in the sting of death. So Martha leaves the story, uh, leaves the house, and he meets Jesus in verse 10. And you see what, I'm sorry, verse 20. And in verse 20, it says, Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But what does Mary do at the end of verse 20? Mary stays at the house. Mary stays at the house. Now, you remember the story of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10? Who's the one who seems most devoted to Jesus in that story? It's Mary. Martha is working and she's getting things prepared. And and Mary is at the feet of Jesus, listening to Jesus teach. She's showing this devotion to the Lord, sitting at his feet. She's most concerned with his words and his teachings. Mary loved the Lord. And yet, when he was coming, who went to see him? Martha. Mary stayed behind. She was likely hurt. That she sent for her Lord, and he was not there for her at her point of need. She's likely hurt. But Martha is also hurt that the Lord did not come sooner. Because look how, what happens in verse 21 after that. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You see the groanings, the pain of Martha in this moment. That she first points out the elephant in the room. He comes to the scene, and finally she says, Lord, if you had been here, we wouldn't be in this situation. He would not have died. And then she follows it up right after that, verse 22. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. In these two verses here, right after, she first blurts out what's on her heart. If you had been here, he would not have died. But I know you're God, and I know whatever you ask of God, he will do of you. She's almost trying to reconcile these emotions. She knows Christ, who he is, but yet the first thing on her mind is, Lord, where were you? I called for you. You knew he was sick. And if you had been here, he would not have died. But yet I know that whatever you ask of God, he will do for you. And so our Lord gives the promise of life. And he reveals it now in the face of death. And he comforts her with this immediate promise first. An immediate promise you see here. He says in verse 23, your brother will rise again. Your brother will rise again. That's that's good news. I think we understand that from this side. But he says your brother will rise again. And what's strange is that even though she just affirmed that whatever you ask of God, right, whatever you ask of God, I know he will hear you. She just affirmed that. In verse 22, and he says, your brother will rise again. You think, oh, okay, because I thought he was just going to stay dead. Okay, good. You would think she would understand. Okay, now he's going to come back to life. But no, no, no. Look at her responses. Verse 24, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Having just affirmed the Lord could do anything, he says he'll rise again, and yet you see the weakness of her faith in her grieving. I know he's going to rise in the last day, but I'm talking about my pain now, Lord. What about my pain now? It's very common in the Old Testament, it taught of a literal resurrection of the body. There's, there's no doubt they didn't, they did not, not believe that there was going to be a resurrection of the body. They knew that was true. But her mind was on that. But Jesus was talking about an immediate promise for her. That she didn't truly and fully understand at that point. But what's most important in this promise is the eternal promise that he gives to her right after that. Verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. This is the fifth I am statement in the gospel of John that we've been working through. The fifth one. And all of them, as they are, is he's is using the terminology I am, pointing to his deity, that he is Yahweh in the flesh, that he is the I am that they knew well of in the Old Testament. He's saying, I am God, and I am the God of life. I give life. Now, let's take a step back. I think we're rightly amazed. Uh, Spoiler alert, Lazarus does rise again, right? But I I think we're rightly amazed at this miracle with Lazarus. and, And it's meant to amaze us. It's meant to amaze them. But yet the miracle of Lazarus' resurrection is just an example of what Christ will do ultimately. Because he doesn't simply say that he is the rec- he's going to give resurrection and life to him right now. He doesn't say that this is what's for him right now. What Jesus is affirming, he's turning her direction away from the circumstances to see in the midst of the suffering and pain, I am the life. I am the resurrection. He is it fully. It's not about what he's going to do right now. Although it's true, we're going to see that. But he's saying fully, if you want to understand, Martha, in the midst of your grieving, you must understand as you're facing death, the backdrop of death is all around us. What you need to understand is I am the God of life. I give resurrecting life. It's me. Turn your eyes away from what's happening and look to me. And he's using this passage, this miracle, one of the greatest miracles, probably the greatest miracle in the gospel of John, to showcase the fact that he is the God of life. And your greatest hope, Martha, is not in your brother's rising, but your greatest hope is that I am the God who will even rise you. That I will raise you. I will give life to your body. Verse 25, it says right after that, that he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. These are good meat right there. That he who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. I mean, those two statements, they seem redundant, but really what he's saying here is that the one who believes in Jesus will live even if he dies. Physically, because he will raise him on the last day. And since everyone who lives and believes in him has eternal life, they will never die spiritually. That, that there's the hope for the believer, that those who believe in him, though they die physically, their physical bodies will be raised. And even though because you believe in him and you have life, you will never taste death. You'll never taste spiritual death. That this is the promise he gives to her in this tragic event. That's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, essentially that if you're absent from the body, then what? Present with the Lord. That death for the believer means life eternal. And at the end of verse 26, when he, he, he says that you will never die, who believes in me will never die is an emphatic phrase that we can't really see in the English, but it's emphatic. He said, you will never, ever die. You shall never die. That this is a hope for them. That he's saying, in the midst of this, I am the one who gives life. And though you may face death at one point, your death is not final. That you will have life eternal. And this will be seen immediately. That the the believer at death enters immediately into the presence of the Lord. And Jesus grants this promise. Romans chapter 8, verse 10. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin... Yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Now these are things that I don't think we struggle to, to, to believe or understand, but look how he follows it up right after at the end of verse 26 to Martha, "Do you believe this? Do you believe this? The believer, do you believe this? He's not just asking, do you just understand this to be true? Martha, do you believe, not just what I will do right now for Lazarus, but do you believe me? Do you believe who I am? Do you believe that I am the life, that I will give life to your mortal body, that if you believe in me, there is no suffering that that will overcome you or take you out because I am the God who gives you life? Do you believe this? He challenged her, Martha, do you believe this? He was not asking if she believed he was about to raise him from the dead, but he was calling her to personally believe that he alone was the source of resurrection power and eternal life. Martha, do you believe this? Believer, do you believe that of your own soul? If your soul is required of you this very day, do you believe? Because you're trusting in Christ that you will be in the presence of the Lord. And if you do believe this, that Jesus is essentially saying that what I'm going to do with Lazarus is nothing in comparison to what I'm going to do for your soul. Do you believe that I am? Do you believe that I am Yahweh in flesh? That I'm God, very God? Job chapter 19 verse 26 as Eric was just mentioning this morning, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. the last, I will take my stand. In verse 26, even after my skin is destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God. That Job was even looking forward to a physical, literal resurrection where he would stand before his God. Even in the midst of Job's suffering, he realizes that his hope is that I will stand and in my flesh, my glorified flesh, a new body, I will see my God. And I love Martha's response to this. Because in verse 27, the lights start to turn on a little bit brighter. She said to him, yes, Lord. I believed that you are the Christ, the son of God, even he who comes into the world. What a beautiful confession off her lips. I mean, you think of of Peter's response to Christ. Yes, you are the son of God. That This is a beautiful confession of this woman where she understands who Christ is. And though she does not understand exactly what he's going to do, how he's going to meet her need in this physical grief right now, she does not fully understand that. But she does believe one thing. She believes that he is the son of God who came into the world. She believes that he is the Christ. She believed in him. She didn't understand all that what he was going to do, but she believed with a small, precious faith who her Savior was. And as much as the I am statement is of this passage here is the anchor of this account, it still stands in the middle of gut-wrenching grief. That he says this in the presence of pain. So let's move now to the second progression of this text, the pain of death. The pain of death. Not only the promise of life, but the pain of death. Because keep in mind, he, he's still outside the village of Bethany. He hasn't entered into the city yet. And so now after this encounter with, with Jesus and she makes this confession to him, she runs now. She goes get, to get to gets Mary. And she tells Mary, the Lord wants to see you. Now remember, who all came to console the sisters? Who all was there? Many Jews, Right? Many Jews, the text made it clear, who was many who, was consult, who were consoling them. And so many were also around Mary at that time. So when Mary got up because she knew the Lord was calling for her, verse 31, who all got up? All of them thinking that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So now all these Jews who are around Mary, who are around consoling the sisters, who came to to console them and to help them and to grieve with them, they're all around them. And now Mary gets up. And so now all the many Jews now will get up as well. From our perspective, from the human perspective, we see this and, and we think that the mourners were there to comfort who? The sisters, right? They were there to comfort the sisters. But from God's perspective, they were there to witness a stunning miracle. A stunning miracle. The raising of Lazarus would be done in public before numerous onlookers, many of whom were opponents of Jesus. So even though just from a human standpoint, many there were grieving along there, thinking they were there just to support Mary and Martha, unbeknownst to them, by the sovereign hand of God, they were there to witness a great miracle of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ so that they would see it even those who oppose his teaching, it's all according to the plan of God. But in the midst of that suffering, in the midst of that pain, they're only thinking about one thing. We're not realizing the fact that God is orchestrating everything from start to finish. Again, the glory of Christ is the forefront of the story. So in the second progression, the pain of death, let's turn the, air, the camera and get, 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 zoom in a little bit on, 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 Mary's, plan, on Mary's pain. Let's look at Mary's pain for a little bit. Because what does Mary say when she sees the Lord? Verse 32. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That sound familiar? The same word, the same grief that Martha poured out before the Lord earlier. The same words, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But in both cases, you notice here, the Lord does not rebuke them for this statement. He does not rebuke them. Because in this, in, in this crying out to him, they still honor the Lord because it says here that she bows to his feet and says this. But, but they're just simply baffled at his ways. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And so she, she's bearing her grief, bearing her pain before the Lord, knowing who he is, and just baffled at what he is doing here in this grief that she has, he has ordained for her. That the pain and reality of death hit these sisters hard. They knew Jesus could heal sickness. Otherwise, why would they call for him? But he did not show up in time. He was not there when they expected him to be there. This is not an unfamiliar cry, is it not? This is not an unfamiliar cry. I mean, where were you, Lord? You came too late. Lord, where were you? Where are you when my loved one died? Lord, where were you when my marriage fell apart? Lord, where were you when I lost my job? Where were you when I lost all of our finances? Where were you when my child walked away from the faith? Lord, where were you? I've been devoted to you. I sat at your feet. I expected you to comfort me in my time of need. Lord, where were you? This is not just a cry of a scoffer, but a cry of one who knows the heart of Christ, who knew who he was, and yet he did not show up in the way that they thought. Lord, where were you? In our heart, we, we interpret the unfavorable outcome as evidence of God's neglect, but believer, it's quite the opposite. That though we see the, the the unfavorable outcome as evidence, we tend to look at it as evidence of God's neglect. We have to see believer that when God delays, He delays for a purpose. That in this passage, it teaches that, that his delays was not just for any reason at all. Because as we go back to verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And right after that, so when connecting that same thought of Christ's love for them, so when he heard he was sick, he stayed there two days longer. John makes the point, Christ loved them. That's not with, that's without question. He loved them. So he stayed two days longer have to understand here, beloved, that Christ delays are even delays of love. That he's not delaying because he forgot about you. He's not delaying because he does, he's just not there not able to. He's delaying even in love. His delays are delays of love. He loved them. And that's reiterated twice in the story to make clear. This is not Christ just showing lack of compassion. It's not Christ just forgetting or just doing some other more important things. No, in all of these things, his love is made evident from start to finish. He loved them, and because he loved them, he delayed and did not answer her immediate request. It was done in love. And his delay, specifically in this story, is designed to strengthen Mary and Martha. It's one practical thing that his delay in meeting their need is to, 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 to designed to strengthen them, to comfort them, even in the face of their deep grieving. Because the crowds are, are, are mourning and are mounting around to see what, what Christ will happen. They're, they're, the crowds are now consoling Mary and Martha. They're now they're following Mary, about to see everything that's going to happen. The disciples are there with Jesus. He says, I want you to see this so you can see and believe. All of these things are working so that they can see the pinnacle of Christ's glory in this account. It's all for a purpose. It's so that they would believe and see who he was. But even though we know the promise that Christ had made... Their faith did not fully understand all that he was about to do. Because now you see here, Mary's grief before the Lord, you would expect now, okay, the Lord says, okay, I've seen Mary's grief. I see the mourners around there. Now Mary even came to me, precious Mary at my feet. She came in mourning as well. I see all this grief. And now from our perspective, I think we expect the Lord now, because he sees this grief, because he's aware of it, okay, now let me fix this grief. But that's not what he does right away. That's not what he does right away. Because even this pain of death, we see Mary's pain. But now, there's another one who is also pained. There's another one who's grieved. And it's our Lord. That Our Lord is in pain at this point as well. Verse 33. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, what was his response? He was deeply moved in spirit And was troubled that he was deeply moved here. That this is not just some sort of fake emotion, some fake weeping that Christ has. But this phrase here was deeply moved. It actually comes from an ancient Greek word that describes a a horse snorting. That when you take this that word in this text, this context, it implies here that that he let out an an involuntary gasp. That he was deeply moved. Just. The wind was taken out of him. That he saw the effects of pain. He saw the grieving of the people there. He saw it there. And he was just, the wind was just taken out of him. he He was grieved. He was moved in his spirit. The wind just went out of him. And even more, it says he was troubled. That he was disturbed. He was unsettled. That their sorrows were taken to heart. That he didn't just come in and just fix it right away. He could. But he sat there. And he grieved with him, that he was moved by this, that God is not impassable in the sense of, of not, being ex, not being able to express emotion, but rather he's impassable in being unchanged by his emotions, so he can express the pain. He can ex- grieve and sin. He can, he can endure with them, but he's not changed in his character or his purpose or his will. But he still sits in the middle of their pain and grieving, and he is moved, gut-riching pain. Beloved, hear this: that if, if your Jesus is not one who weeps at the effects of sin that we all feel, you're not understand, your understanding of him is lacking. You must understand that he does grieve at the effects of sin. He grieves at the effects of the fall. He grieves in pain alongside of you. That he weeps. He is moved. But even more, he's not grieving for the same reasons that the Jews are grieving. Because they're there. A lot of them may be there, maybe paid to be there. A lot of them are there because of customary tradition. They're supposed to be there. They're grieving, yeah, they they lost Lazarus and they're just grieving there because they're supposed to be there. But here when he is grieving, he's not just grieving with this superficial grieving. He's actually grieving from the heart because he sees everything that's going on. That his grieving is unique. That our Lord's suffering is unique because he sees all and he grieves at it. It says in verse 35, the famous verse we know well, Jesus wept. He wept. And in fact, that's the only time this word is used in the New Testament. Because this is here, it emphasizes the fact that when he is grieving, he is not weeping for the same reasons that maybe those Jews are weeping. And maybe even for the same reasons that Mary and Martha are weeping. But when he is weeping here, his weeping is is unique in the sense that it's demonstrating the fact that he is fully human Grasping the pain of sin, grasping the pain, the effects of the fall. He is he is he's weeping at everything that he's seeing there because he realizes how painful sin is and how painful its effects are upon his people. And this this weeping here is in contrast to the loud wailing that the Jews would just do in their mourning. But his tears were generated by both his love for Lazarus and by his grief over the deadly and incessant effects of sin in a fallen world, that he realizes the true cause of sickness and death, and he is weeping, and not just fake weeping. He is weeping from his heart. He is moved. So Isaiah 53 says that he truly was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He knew it well. Hebrews 4.15, it says we don't have a high priest Who's not able to understand understand you in in your moment of weakness? You have a high priest who sees your weakness, who knows your weakness, even so much so that he bids you to come before his throne so you can get grace and mercy in your point of need. That I love how this passage just emphasizes our Lord's humanity. Though being fully God, truly God, he is truly human. He's truly a man. And he is acquainted with our grief. But even so, that he grieves because he realizes the true effects of grief and the true effects of sin. And he is moved by it. One person said this, that we have a great God and Savior who loves us, who delays and stays away who allows us to go through ultimate extremity and then he comes and enters into our sorrow. He enters the sorrow that he could have prevented in such a way that he gasps. His whole body shudders and he begins to weep. That is the perspective Christ wants us to have. If you are hurting, he wants you to know that he weeps with you. That we don't hide our grief. But we bring our pain, as Mary does, falls at his feet, and we grieve at his feet. Knowing who he is in holy reverence, knowing that he is the God who's in control from start to finish, and I will grieve at his feet because I know who he is, and he grieves along with me. Now let's move to the third progression. The preview of life, we'll see. The preview of life. Because at this point now, you see grieving on all fronts. Mary, Martha, the the, the Jews. It's all this this grieving is around this, the whole backdrop of the scene. And now we're going to see a glimpse, the preview of life. Because at this point now, Jesus is stirred to action. And he is stirred to do what he sought to do from the very beginning. To display his glory. And he's going to do that through the raising of Lazarus. He tells Martha to remove the stone. Even though Lazarus has been dead, it says four days. I mean, at that point, at that area in that culture, due to climate, it was very warm. So after, when someone died, they would bury them after one day because they knew the body would decompose and just start to stink. So after one day, the body would be buried. But even for them, they realized that after three days, uh, for the first three days after death, that there's some some myths, I guess you can call it superstitions, is that they would see that the, the, the soul of the body hovers over the, the body for three days. And after that three days, it's basically just gone. And so for, for him to wait four days, it's setting the, the, the precedent here is that four days means the body's dead. There's no hope that they see here, that he, he's already done. His body is dead. All hope is gone. But this is all for a purpose, that Christ knew what he was doing. And it's all the more for what? The glory of Christ, so the Son of Man may be glorified. Look at verse 40. He says, Jesus said to her, after he tells her to remove the stone, and she's questioning, Lord, it's going to be a stench for four days. It's going to stink. You want to remove the stone? He says, did I not tell you, or did I not say to you, that if you believe, you will what? See the glory of God? As it's been made clear, the the disciples will see. What, what is Jesus' perspective in all of this that's happening? We, we see Martha and Mary's perspective. They're, they're seeing their Lord, they're grieving because he didn't come in time. We see the Jews just grieving as well alongside them. But all the while, Jesus here has the forefront of his mind, his glory. That her, Martha's belief will be deepened by this, that Mary's grief will turn to rejoicing, that many of the Jews will witness this. He's saying here, Didn't I not tell you you will see the glory of God if you believe? All of this is to extol his glory. And so he responds to that. They finally removed the stone. And then I love Jesus' prayer in the midst of this. That the stone is removed from there. And look how he prays in verse 41. He raised his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. Can you catch that? That is he's praying here, He's saying here, I know that you hear me. I know you always hear me, but the reason why I'm praying out loud, I'm raising my eyes, I'm I'm looking above, I'm praying outwardly externally is so that they may believe that you sent me. He's doing this, why? So that they will see that he was sent by God. He's going to do a great miracle and God will be glorified and God will be glorified because the son will be glorified. He's doing this for his glory so that they may see. He could have just silently prayed that prayer, but he did that so that they may witness what's going on and what's about to happen. And so then he cries in a loud voice after this. When he said these things, verse 43, he cried out with a loud voice. Now just stop there. You think, I mean, he could have just really just whispered it. He could have just snapped his fingers. But no, no, he says he cried in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And then what happens? The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth, and Jesus said to him, Unbind him and let him go. You see here this is the pinnacle, the, the great part of the miracle of finally this, this grieving that they had was, was just marveled like wait a minute, it's four days that he was bound, he was covered. He, he, he's, he's alive again? That many are amazed, and who gets the glory? Christ, in that in the amazement of this miracle, who was glorified? Because right after that, what happens in verse 45? Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary, again, these Jews, they came to Mary, why? To support Mary, to comfort Mary. But yet Christ, knowing all this, they all now came to witness this spectacle. And what happens? They came to tell Mary, and they saw what he had done, and what? Believed in him. That Because of what they witnessed now, they believed in him in him who's glorified the son that the christ glory here is at the forefront that he is glorified because many now came to believe in him but even after that in verse 46 but some of them went to the pharisees and told them these things which jesus had done so though many believed also those who did not believe hated him even more So much so they went to tell the Pharisees and really this is like the last part now before his suffering begins because now the betrayal happens and they say, no, no, we got to stop this man who's even raising dead people again. Like, we got to stop him. But all this is according to Christ's perfect plan. He's drawing many unto himself to believe upon him. He is glorified as they see him as he is. And even more, he's using this to lead to his suffering, which would lead to his betrayal, which would lead to his death on a cross for the sins of mankind, which would lead to him himself rising from the grave, which would lead also to those who believe in him will rise again one day too. This is all according to the plan of God. That in the midst of this suffering, in the backdrop of this pain and grief and sorrow of people who believe and cling to Christ, they see that he is glorified even in their suffering because from their perspective, they see a God who's too late. But from God's perspective, he is on time all the time. And really this is the preview of life because even Lazarus, will die again. He's going to die again. But this is a preview to show what he would do finally and ultimately. Because why? Because as he affirmed for us, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me will not die. The Lord is working from many different angles throughout the story. And each angle has its own perspective that Mary here is grieving, believing that she, she, she knew the Lord whom she trusted, and yet she's grieving. Martha is wondering what's going on and have to go see him. The disciples are afraid to go to Judea because they don't want to get stoned. And, and, and you see the Jews are mourning, thinking they're comforting their neighbors. All the while, the Lord is pulling their earthly perspectives up to his perspective so they can rightly see his glory. That Christ is pulling everyone's perspective to the one true perspective in this grief, and that is his glory. That this great miracle in John's account, the greatest miracle in John's account, is not meant to just show us, wow, he can raise the dead, which is true. But it's meant to show us that he is the life. And if you want to live, if you want to live, then you must cling to this one who is the resurrection and the life. Let's not forget the main truth to take in. Because it's not that he can raise a dead man and bring him back to life. Although that's pretty awesome. And it's not even that he grieves in our pain. Although he does and praise God. And it's not even that he has the power to fix our problem. But it's the problem, the, the, the main point is that he is the resurrection and the life. And that, my friend, is your greatest need. In your suffering, your greatest need is not just to have the problem fixed, but your greatest need is to fix your eyes on the one who will put an end to all suffering and all pain and all grieving. Fix your eyes. Where's your hope? Do you realize that when you die, you will be in his presence because your faith is in the Son of God? That in the story, Christ brings them to their greatest low to show them high truths. He does this purposefully to bring them down to grief, to hopelessness, so they could see all hope is in him. Such that not even death is something that we fear. But as a believer, we can welcome it because we realize what death brings. That death is not the unknown for us in Christ, but it's the comforting presence of the Lord. Do you believe this? Can I echo the Lord's words? Do you believe this? Do you believe that though you live now, if you die, you will live? Do you believe this? Prod yourself. Challenge your own soul. Do you believe if you were to die, if your soul were to be summoned right now, do you believe you would live? The only solution, the only answer to that question is yes, because I believe that he is the I am. That he is my life. He is my resurrection. He will raise my body. Do you believe this? And if so, believer, let me, let me ask some more questions. How do you grieve? How do you grieve? Do you understand that in love, even our, our deepest pain is ordained by our Lord? Do you believe that? Your deepest pain is ordained by your Lord that he always has a plan, he's always working. And even though it feels like he's abandoned us, he never has. I mean, look at Joseph. That even in Joseph's neglect, quote unquote, his neglect, that in his lowest lows meant provision and safety for an entire nation. That through the suffering of one man, the Lord was loving and protecting not only Joseph, but his whole nation of people. That even when it seems there's neglect, even when it seems there is a delay, that his delays are delays in love that is designed to strengthen you, that is designed to bring you up to his perspective, that is designed to comfort you in his grief, to realize that, yes, your Lord grieves along with you at the effects of sin, but your Lord has a sole solution for every pain of your soul. His delays are delays of love and his delays Just like for Mary and Martha are designed to strengthen you, to pull your perspective up to his so that you can view and grieve in light of who he is. So view your suffering as we view our suffering, finding all our hope in him, the resurrection and the life. And therefore we can view earthly turmoil through the eyes of our savior. This wonderful account here in John 11 helps us understand the heart of God. But don't forget that he is aware of sickness and death and pain and suffering. He knows it very well, and he's acquainted with it. Moreover, he grieves at it. And beyond that, he will conquer it. The greatest cause is sin. Sin brings death, and he not only grieves at this, he not only knows it and has experienced it, but he came to conquer it because of his resurrection all believers including Lazarus will one day receive a glorified incorruptible body that this body that is sown perishable as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 it's sown perishable it is raised imperishable that you see and we can rejoice along with Paul as he says in verse chapter 15 verse 50 Verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery that we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when the perishable will have put on this imperishable, imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then we will come about in the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And therefore we can say, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? That the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That though we feel and we encounter the effects of pain, the effects of sin, the effects of death, It's not over, believer that this fixes our eyes not only on he, the resurrection of life, but the fact that we will also one day be with him in a glorified physical body. No more pain, no more sorrow. He will wipe away every tear from the eye. He will bring us into his presence and he will dwell with us. He will right every wrong and we will see, yes, he is the resurrection. Yes, he is the life. And I stand because he rose and I stand with him. He is my God, that though the reality of pain is real, Christ stands in the midst of this pain and says, I am the resurrection, and I'm the life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the hope that is in Christ. That Lord, that though we see and feel even now the effects of pain and sin, We rejoice in the fact that you will one day complete the work you have started in us, and you will complete it to the day of salvation. Father, we long for a glorified body, but even more, we long to be with you. That, Lord, may we shout from the depth of our soul, come, Lord Jesus, come even now. So, Lord, comfort us even in our time of need. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.